One thing that all Christians can agree on is that the Apostle Paul made a huge impact on the world. He was born in the Middle East. Paul became the most well-known spokesman for the Lord Jesus Christ that ever lived and that ever will live, I would argue. Letters that Paul wrote from filthy prisons have found their way into nearly every hotel room in modern America. Speeches that he gave before civil magistrates have been read by boys and girls in over a thousand languages all over the globe. Phrases such as, all things work together for good, by grace you have been saved, and if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, among many others, have given hope, strength, and comfort to millions of people of all different backgrounds. All of this, of course, is because the Holy Spirit blessed Paul and his writings. No one disagrees, at least no Christian would disagree, that Paul has made a huge impact on millions, if not billions of people over the past 2,000 years. There is something, however, that many Christians don't agree on, and at least I have interacted with this um, claim on several occasions, and that is this, that the Apostle Paul set out to transform society. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So on here, was Paul... One second here. I've got to get this set up. Sorry about that. Was Paul trying to change the society, the values, and even the laws of communities and nations and even the world? Was Paul trying to do that? Now, one of the practical implications of a robustly biblical theology is the need to transform our society according to the Word of God. To the great detriment of our nation, the church in America has largely embraced a pessimistic outlook of the future and has therefore abandoned the effort to build a Christian society. In a video circulating online, a well-known preacher said something that reflects the common sentiment of many within the church today. He said this, We are not in the world today to reform the world. Our mandate in the world is not political, it's not social, and it's not economic. We were never invited to fix this and this and this. The calling of the church is to proclaim the gospel. Alright, now that is an objection that comes from many sincere Christians, and that is this, that the New Testament does not focus on political or social issues. In fact, the Apostle Paul is often cited by name as the prime example of one who did not really get involved with social issues, political issues, or trying to change society. Paul, the reasoning goes, was simply focused on preaching the gospel and did not spend time trying to change the culture or society, which includes laws, institutions, etc. However, my contention this morning is that the Apostle Paul not only tried to change the societal and political landscape, but he actually succeeded. He actually succeeded. So this sermon is a bit of a polemic. That means it is a refutation or an argument against a view, and the view is that the Christian mandate does not include a societal transformation, uh, the charge to transform society. So as such, it's going to be brief. I want to give an overview of the theology and Paul's teaching, 
We're not going to be exegeting one text in particular, but there is one verse I do want us to look at from the outset, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and the reason is because this text is often used by people who would argue against my position today. And they'll look at this text and say, see, Paul was not about anything other than preaching the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes the essence of his preaching as Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Word of God says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, part of good teaching is correcting erroneous teaching. And it is a mistake for people to use this text to conclude that Paul only taught the gospel and did not teach other things. Using the analogy of faith, we know that Paul did not mean by this statement that he would not teach on other things. And let me explain the analogy of faith It is an important principle. The analogy of faith is a reformed hermeneutical principle which states that since all scriptures are harmoniously united with no essential contradictions, every proposed interpretation of any passage must be compared with what the other parts of the Bible teach. In other words, the faith or body of doctrine which the scriptures as a whole proclaim will not be contradicted by any passage. So if One passage says something, and we think it means this, but the rest of Scripture says something contrary to what we think the passage means, then our interpretation of that passage needs to be adjusted. Scripture does not contradict itself. So, Paul clearly taught on other things. We see that in Scripture. We see that he taught on sexual ethics, 1 Corinthians 7, church order, 1 Corinthians 14, spiritual gifts, Romans 12. Elder and deacon qualifications, 1 Timothy 3. Husband and wife relationships, Colossians 3. Family and children, Ephesians 6. Civil government, Romans 13. Prayer, 1 Thessalonians 5. Work, 2 Thessalonians 3. Eschatology, 1 Corinthians 15. The law, 1 Timothy 1, and much more. And even as Bobby read this morning... Uh, I didn't ask him to read that passage, but the Word of God touches on every issue of life. And the Apostle Paul taught on many, many issues uh, among these, and there are many more. So let's go back to this text then. What does Paul mean in in verse 1 of this text? Paul is contrasting his speech with that of the Greek orators of his day who focused on eloquence and persuasion. Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't use lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come to you trying to win this argument in the way that the Greek orators did. They were trained speakers who would use fancy rhetoric and human wisdom to win arguments. Paul did not rely on that, but rather on the truth of God in his preaching. His preaching was in demonstration of the Spirit 
and of power. When Paul said he determined to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he was referring to the core and substance of all his teaching. The ground of everything Paul taught was Christ. Everything he taught, from family to government to eschatology, was rooted in Jesus Christ and His work of redemption. Paul's desire to change the culture and his success was also rooted in Christ and the cross. So Paul did not rely on humanistic wisdom to effect change, but rather on the truth and power of God's gospel. Now this principle applies across the board, and you see it in many different areas. You see it in apologetics, when we're defending the faith. You see some people trying to rely on the wisdom of men, and using man-made arguments instead of standing on the foundation of the Word of God as the basis for truth. You see in other issues, for example, the abortion issue, you'll hear people say, well, we can't use the Word of God to argue against abortion. We have to use humanistic, secular arguments because that's the only way we're going to win these arguments. And that is a mistake. We are to stand on the Word of God, proclaim the truth of God's Word, as our foundation, as the core and substance of all our teaching, because that is what will bring about change. And that is what Paul's point is in this text, is that everything he taught was based upon Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his work as the Savior. It does not mean that Paul did not teach on things other than simply the gospel message, quote-unquote. Now, did Paul really try to change society? All right. Did Paul really try to change a society? What is a society? Uh, Noah Webster, my favorite dictionary, 1828 dictionary, Webster defines society as follows. The union of a number of rational beings or a number of persons united either for a temporary or permanent purpose. Thus, the inhabitants of a state or of a city constitute a society having common interests, and hence it is called a community. In a more enlarged sense, the whole race or family of man is a society and called human society. The true and natural foundation of society are the wants and fears of individuals. Remember that. We'll come back to that. So I will defend my assertion today that Paul sought to change the society by focusing on the four levels of government within human society, the four main levels of government, self-government, family government, church government, and civil government or the state. So we'll focus on those four levels within human society very briefly. Now, did Paul teach on these things? Let's first look at the self or individual. Paul clearly taught on this topic of the individual. Paul taught that God commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul sought to bring about the most fundamental change within society, the changed heart of the individual. The Christian faith drastically reorients the wants and fears of individuals, right? Webster said the basic foundation of society is the wants and fears of individual people. The Christian faith totally reorients those wants and fears. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of man lays a snare. In Hebrews, it talks about those who, before they become Christians, they live their life in the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2. Luke 1 talks about when the Messiah comes, he will free us from our fear of our enemies and we might serve God with joy. So the Christian faith reorients the wants and fears of individuals. And Paul taught extensively on this. And the changed individual is the foundation for any change that will come about in 
the society. And in fact, when you look at the spread of Christianity, the rise of the individual, not to the exclusion of community, because Christianity is about community, but you look at pagan nations, there are no, the idea of individual rights and individual liberty is foreign. With Christianity comes this notion that the individual is essential. Each individual is made in the image of God. And everything else in society is based upon individuals interacting together. There is no question that the preaching of the gospel and its call for obedience radically changes individuals. What about the next level of society, the family? Clearly, Paul taught extensively on family, seeking to change the way people operate in the realm of family government. If Paul didn't need to... If Paul didn't see the need for people to change the way they operate within the family, he wouldn't have taught on these things. So Paul taught on extensively on the role of family and the, and the different roles. He taught on marital relations, 1 Corinthians 7.5, separation and divorce, 1 Corinthians 7.10-13, the roles of husbands and wives, Ephesians 5.22-33, the duties of children and parents, Ephesians 6, verses 1-4, and many more. Paul clearly taught on the family. And we learned that from our text as well this morning, that the scripture teaches on all things. If you have a question about how to operate within the family, go to the word of God. A third level of society that Paul taught on is the church. Paul taught about the church of Jesus Christ. He taught on elders, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He taught on deacons, 1 Timothy 3. He taught on church discipline, 1 Corinthians 5. He taught about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. Baptism. Romans 6, care for widows in the church in 1 Timothy 5, and on and on. So Paul taught about the individual, he taught about the family, he taught about the church. So already we're seeing this idea that Paul only taught about the gospel must be tempered and interpreted based on the rest of scripture. So, so far I think most people would agree, Paul taught extensively on these three areas. Now we get to the fourth level of society, which may be labeled state or civil government, this is an area where many Christians will say Paul did not seek to change things. Paul did not seek to change uh, the governments. He did not seek to do that. That's the argument. But he did teach specifically on the civil government in Romans chapter 13. He taught that the civil government was ordained by God to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Romans 13.4. Now I'm not preaching on that text, you can look that up at your convenience. But it's undeniable when Paul says in that passage that God has ordained civil governments, in fact, it says they are ministers. So when we talk about the civil magistrate, we're talking about ministers. We often just think of ministers as as pastors and things like that. The Bible talks about magistrates as ministers of God to execute wrath on him that does evil. It's undeniable, though, that Paul's reference for evil was that which is contrary to God's moral law. 1 Timothy 1, Paul says the law is good if you use it lawfully, and then he cites sins of kidnapping and sexual morality and these things that go against God's law as as the standard for evil. So here's the point. By teaching this, by teaching that the civil magistrate exists to punish evil, and again, the analogy of faith, Paul's standard for evil was God's law. By teaching this, Paul was seeking to change the view that the civil government is not required to govern according to God's standard of good and evil. 
You see, civil rulers in Paul's day did not always execute wrath on him that doeth evil, but rather on the one that did good. And it's the same in our day. And we need to look no further than the gospel accounts. You look at the gospel accounts. The Lord Jesus Christ was persecuted and killed by by those in authority. Paul faced persecution by those in authority. Today, those who do good face persecution often from the civil authority. So sometimes people read this and say, oh, oh no, this means that Paul's saying, no matter what, the government always executes wrath on the one that does evil. That is patently false because even in the scripture, sometimes the civil government would execute wrath on those that do good. So Paul is teaching. He's teaching something here. He's teaching a correct view of civil majesty, of, of government that was often not followed. Now, that's the key. Noah Webster defines teaching as this, communicating to another the knowledge of that which he was before ignorant. Therefore, when Paul teaches on civil government, he is seeking to transform the people's view of it. Right? He's seeking to change the way they think of it. He's trying to remove their ignorance from them or their suppression of that truth that this is how the government is to operate and he's trying to educate them and teach them the correct way. Now, it's clear that every level of society was addressed by Paul. All right, not to mention the authors of the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament authors. All right. The next objection may be that if Paul was trying to change the society, right, the individual, the family, the church, and the civil government, was that he failed. Did Paul fail? The first thing to note is that the first thing to note is that extensive societal transformation is not the same as total societal transformation. Right? We do not measure um, the success of the gospel, whether or not every single person comes to faith, and we do not measure the success of the Christian mandate based on if every single person is obedient to God. Furthermore, we must not measure Paul's success solely in terms of the immediate results during his lifetime. When we take the long view specifically relating to Western civilization, it is undeniable that Paul, through the power of God, was successful in dramatically transforming society. Even laws were changed based on the Christian message. For example, I want to share this quote. I've shared it once before, but it's a very powerful quote. The transformation of England from a backwater corrupt nation into an incredible missionary force for Christianity can be traced to the introduction of the Geneva Bible and with it, Paul's teaching. Let me just read this quote. England of 1557 was a society beset by contradictions, oppression, and even barbarity. More than 300 men had been burned at the stake by the Catholic tyrant Bloody Mary Tudor merely for promoting the English Reformation. Many clergymen, Catholic and Protestant both, exacerbated rather than soothed the distress. Semi-literate as a class, these, these pastors received their parish jobs as payoffs and often were unwilling to preach or incapable of composing sermons. The impoverished and spiritually bereft masses found solace elsewhere, sloth, dissipation, or drink, while the gentry sought after wealth, social position, and favors of royal courts. It was a mess, right? Into this seemingly hopeless culture of corruption and error, the light of God's written word 
in the newly translated, published, and distributed Geneva Bible inexorably began to liberate the English-speaking people, penetrating hearts and transforming minds. Here's the key. It is no exaggeration to say that the Geneva Bible was the most significant catalyst of the transformation of England, Scotland, and America from slavish feudalism to the heights of Christian civilization. No exaggeration that the Bible transformed those nations and brought them to the heights of Christian civilization. Now, until relatively recently, the majority of laws in Western culture, and even still today, are based on Christian principles. There's a law professor from Brazil, and uh, he studied in Australia, so that's why it says Australia. There. And an article, he wrote an article entitled, A Law Above the Law, Christian Roots of the English Common Law. And he said this, The English common law has an incredibly rich Christian heritage. England's most celebrated jurists, including the likes of Blackstone, Coke, and Fortescue, often drew heavily from their Christian faith when expounding and developing what are now well-established principles and doctrines of the common law. Time would fail me to cite all the ways in which Christianity has transformed Western culture, not to mention the world. Whenever one looks into the history of Western culture, Christianity has had an incredibly transformative power. Now, the current heightened attack on Christian values in our society, something we all can relate to, demonstrates the roots of our nation and our culture was Christian, largely Christian. The worldviews and values we see being promoted today against the Christian values, whether it be humanism, homosexuality, feminism, abortion, statism, atheism, all these things stand in direct opposition to the rich Christian heritage of Western culture. A civilization with roots going all the way back to the Apostle Paul. So, Paul sought to transform society by teaching a distinctly Christian worldview for the four major areas of culture. Self, family, church, and civil government. Now, of course, Paul did not know the exact details of what would take place in the following years. Right? And so people say, oh, Paul didn't know all this would happen. Certainly, he didn't know exactly how it happened. But it is not anachronistic. It's not reading back into history to say that Paul sought to see the nations transformed. After all, it was Paul's Lord and Savior who said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry, in commenting on this verse in the Great Commission, gives the rallying cry for Christian missions when he says, Do your utmost to make the nations Christian Nations. That's what Matthew Henry saw as the Great Commission. That's what he saw as the Great Commission. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul saw as well. Now to close, I want to make two points of application. As this sermon is addressing more of a systematic theology issue, the application will be fitting to that. And the first thing is that we want to understand that a, a proper understanding of the mission of Christians in the world is constantly under attack. The Christian mandate to transform the world is constantly under attack. We'll look at that. And number two, our view of history is distorted if we misunderstand the Christian mandate in the world. We'll look at these two points of application and we will wrap up. So let's look at the first one to begin. The pagans want nothing more than for Christians to stay out of their business. I think we all see that, right? The pagans, those that are not followers of Jesus, are adamantly opposed to Christ being honored in the public square. They're adamantly opposed to Christ being 
even referenced in the civil square. Now, that should give us a hint. Why are they so opposed to that? You don't see them so opposed to other so-called deities, right? We know there's only one true God, but they're not opposed if someone came up with some made-up religion and said, oh yeah, I believe in, in this and, and I want to serve in the government. They don't care about that. But the moment Christ is spoken of, there is radical opposition. That should give us a hint of something. You see in the Bible, some of the people that were most opposed to Christ were those in power. Why? It is because Christianity, true biblical Christianity, impacts every level of society. Right? Why is the, the first opposition that Jesus faces is from Herod, a civil magistrate of his day, who was threatened by this Jesus who would be king and threaten his rule. Paul faced so much opposition from religious and civil leaders. Why? Because they knew Paul's doctrine was a threat to their system. And they were right. The pagans understood Jesus Christ, Paul, the gospel is a threat to humanistic, pagan society and culture. They knew it. And they know it to this day. Unfortunately, many Christians, perhaps unwittingly, also stand opposed to Paul's vision to transform society. Many Christians, unfortunately, stand with the pagans and want to keep Christ out of every area of society. Now, as part of this application, I want to return to this quote from the preacher that I shared earlier. After stating that the church's role is not to reform or transform the world, but rather to preach the gospel, he said something interesting. He said this, The gospel is the answer to slavery. The gospel is the answer to human trafficking. The gospel is the answer to the upside-down world in which we presently live. History tells us that the abolition of slavery was brought about by Christian men and women. So he's preaching the sermon. He's saying it's not our job to reform the world. It's not our job to transform the world. It's just our job to preach the gospel. But then he says, but the gospel changes all these things. He references William Wilberforce and his quest to end slavery. And what does he attribute his mission to end slavery to? Answer, the gospel, the gospel. That's what he says. And he continues and he says this. And track with me here. You see, the gospel changed Wilberforce's heart changed his mind, changed his mind about everything, and caused him to say, this is wrong, and this must be addressed. Now, wait a minute. If the gospel and the church are not to be involved in social issues and reforming the world, then how could the gospel have caused Wilberforce to not only say that slavery is wrong, but that it must be addressed? Not only is it wrong, it must be addressed. That's because the gospel has a lot to do with social issues. Jesus died for sinners, rose from the dead, and was given all authority in heaven and on earth. When someone believes in the gospel, they submit to Jesus as Lord, and they seek to honor him in every area of human activity. Are social issues the only issues? No. Personal piety is essential as well. But none of those things are mutually exclusive. If you take the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the first four focus on our obligation to God, and the last six focus on our obligation to fellow man. 
they are not mutually exclusive. Preaching the gospel is not mutually exclusive from seeking to apply the lordship of Christ to all of life. We saw that in Paul's teaching, did we not? He taught on every area of human activity. The preacher goes on here, in attempting to defend his initial statement that we're not in the world to reform the world, he says this, and again, follow closely. He says, you say, aren't you talking out of both sides of your mouth? See, he realizes that what he's saying sounds contradictory. No, carefully says, the distinction between the responsibility of the church to proclaim the gospel and then for the pastor teacher to proclaim the implications of the gospel in the outworking of that in every area of life so that Wilberforce did not sit, listen to this, Wilberforce did not sit under a steady diet of non-Bible teaching whereby his pastor was constantly going on and on about the issue of the day. He says this, he says, Wilberforce sat under the instruction of the Bible. His pastor was going on and on always about the gospel. And he realized that when the gospel changed him, he had a role to play in society. And so do you, but it's not my role, end quote. When I read that, I just said, huh? What are you talking about? There's, there's several problems with this. First of all, he tries to draw this imaginary distinction between the, the role of the church and the role of Christians in general. But the church is made up of Christians. To say that every single Christian has a role to play in society, but that the church doesn't have a role to play is to make a distinction without a difference. Now, I understand there's the institution of the church, but when these statements are made, Christians read and say, oh, we're part of the church, so we're not. our job is not to be involved in any of these issues. It's true that the church is not the state, but that does not mean Christians are not to be involved in every area of life. Maybe he's just saying that we should all be involved in reforming society, but, but he shouldn't. I don't know, because he says it's your job, not mine. But the other main thing is this. The other problem with this is that he presents a straw man argument that is used against my position and the position of the Puritans and many of the Westminster divines, and that is the position that the gospel and the word of God should be applied to every area of life. He applies this straw man argument that that when you teach that, it's non-Bible teaching. You see what he said? Uh, he did not sit under a steady diet of non-Bible teaching. What does he mean then by he sat under the instruction of the Bible? He sat under the instruction of the Bible. A pastor that is teaching the whole counsel of God will deal with much more than what he refers to as the gospel. He will teach on murder, Exodus 21. 12, kidnapping, Exodus 21.16, bestiality, Exodus 22.19, adultery, Leviticus 20.10, homosexuality, Leviticus 20.13, false prophets, Deuteronomy 13, prostitution, rape, Deuteronomy 22.24, and many other crimes. He will teach on protecting the innocent and helping the needy, Proverbs 24. He will teach on the role of the civil magistrate. The list goes on and on and on to borrow his phrase. So this is a straw man argument. He's saying, if you're teaching on these, all these issues of the day, you're not teaching the Bible. You just need to teach the gospel. But it's the Bible that teaches on all these issues. The Bible addresses every issue of life, as we learned in our scripture reading today. It's not non-Bible teachings. This is a straw man. A straw man argument is when you make an argument that's not the position of your opponent, and then you tear it down. So people will say, Oh, people who want to tr apply the Bible to all of life, that, that's non-Bible teaching, and we reject non-Bible teaching. We just teach the Bible. That's not true because 
if you don't teach on these things, then you're not teaching all the Bible. So it's a straw man argument that he makes, and it's um, I think it's just poorly made, and hopefully he'll he'll make he'll adjust that. But the Bible clearly teaches on every area, every um, area of life, every level of society. So true Bible teaching will include the application of the Word of God to every area of life. Now the second point of application, our final point here, is that has to do with having a Christian worldview when it comes to history. Now this may be particularly poignant for us with children. We are teaching our children history, and we're teaching them how to view the Christian mission within history. Unfortunately, many Christians have the same view of history as the pagans. The pagan textbooks hate the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to any government school and read their history textbooks. You'll see maybe a tiny bit about Christ and will not in any way be giving him the glory due his name. They fail to give him glory for all that he has done in history through his body and even through his enemies. May it not be so with us. As Christians, when Christians adopt the view, however, that the Great Commission does not include the charge to bring all areas of human activity under the Lordship of Christ, it is inevitable that they will fail to see how followers of Jesus have, in fact, radically changed the world by attempting to bring all areas of human activity under the Lordship of Christ. If you don't see that as part of the the mandate from Christ, then you're not going to recognize it when it's happened. Right? We, we honor the pilgrims, right? Every Christian's like, oh yeah, the pilgrims were great. Great, great, you know, Christian heritage and, and, uh, you know, we, we honor them and revere them. But it's almost like the reason that Christians love them is the same reason they hate them. Like, why do we honor the pilgrims? Why, why do we remember them and the, these men who came, these Puritans who came to America? It's because they sought to bring every area of human activity under the Lordship of Christ. Right, and that's why Christians realize that, but then it's the same reason they hate them. They're like, well, you know, the period, but they got it wrong because they tried to apply the Lordship of Christ to every area of life. And they say, well, they didn't get it all right. Yeah, they didn't get everything right, but they sure did get a lot more right than modern-day Christians. Right? Now, you know, we don't commend the pagan civilization saying, well, at least they didn't go too far in trying to bring the Lordship of Christ to bear. Right? But, we, but Christians have this tendency to attack the pilgrims and the Puritans for the very reason that we commend them. It's, it's just confusion there. So this view that we should be disengaged from the culture colors our view of the past, and it blurs the memory of the great advancements made in Christian civilization. The pilgrims, the Puritans, and others should be honored in that they brought, they sought to bring all things under the authority of Christ, and honored insofar as they did that. And their errors were not in doing that. Their errors were when they strayed from the Bible. So we miss the great, you know, human history, the great advance of the gospel and Christian civilization. We miss that when we don't realize that that's part of the mission of the church. And we look back and we almost frown upon men who sought to do just that, sought to advance the gospel and transform society. In conclusion, let me say this. Wilberforce tried to change society, right? And he succeeded by abolishing slavery in England. And he learned from the best. The Apostle Paul himself not only tried to transform society, he was actually successful, as evidenced by the remarkable transformation of culture that has taken place from the time of Christ until today. Paul was not alone, of course. The transformation drew upon many other laborers. 
from Polycarp to Athanasius to Augustine to John Calvin to William Wilberforce, not to mention thousands and millions of individuals whose names are lost to history, God has been using Christians to faithfully proclaim the truth and teach all nations to obey for generations. There is more work to be done. However, the argument that Paul did not try to transform society should be silenced by a careful consideration of the implications of his doctrine and the irrefutably enormous influence of Christianity on the Western world, of Christianity of whom Paul was the greatest spokesperson that ever lived. And I believe that God is able to do even more in the days ahead. So when someone makes the claim that Paul didn't try to change the culture or the laws or the society, I say that Paul not only tried, he did it. He did it. He changed the world. And if Paul wasn't trying, right, if you want to say, well, that wasn't his goal, though. He wasn't trying. I mean, I'll argue on that, with you on that, but if you want to say that, fine, Paul wasn't trying. Look what he did. Imagine what we could do as Christians if we tried. So Paul clearly, in my estimation, sought to change the world, and he was successful. And there's much more work to be done as we continue to bring about the obedience to Christ among all nations, starting in our hearts and in our families. And that's where it starts. That's the foundation of all society. So I pray that we would, um, we would continue the work that the Apostle Paul started 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your sovereign care over history, your involvement in every detail of human history. Thank you that you guided the Apostle Paul. You preserved his words for us. You preserved his letters, you preserved his accounts in the book of Acts, his speeches. We pray, Lord, that we would be edified by Paul's writing. We pray that we would be about the proclamation of the Lordship of Christ, beginning in our own hearts, our families, the church, and throughout the world, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be honored and revered as he deserves, that he would not be mocked and spurned, that you would break the teeth of the wicked who are seeking to oppress your image bearers and that Jesus Christ's name would be lifted up and exalted as he deserves. And I pray that you would bless this time now as we go together and enjoy a meal and a fellowship together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.